Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, we'll begin, we'll be reading the first eight verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And, he, and it, above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the, voice, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for the privilege to share your word. Lord, we ask that you might deal with our hearts today, and I pray that this church, the Sugar Run Valley Baptist Church, will experience revival. We know there's been a revival meeting, but Lord, we need revival in our hearts, and so I pray that to that end. I pray you'd use the message today to uh, help in that accomplishment, that you might honor your word and give enablement to bring the word, Lord, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our revival meeting is now history. God blessed in the meeting with one soul saved, and we as Christians were challenged from God's word, and several made decisions to be more concerned about the lost and to be more faithful witnesses for our Lord. These are some blessings of the meeting. But has revival come to our church? Well, time will tell whether that be true. Time will tell whether revival has truly come. You see, revival is not making decisions. Revival is change. It's when we are actually changed. It's one thing to say, I'm going to do something. It's another to actually do it. And God is the one that brings that change in our life. And that change, when God really brings that to our life and to our church, is called revival. We're in true need of revival. We need to be more like Christ. We need to be rejecting sin. Of course, Jesus was sinless, and, uh, but he was tempted, not in ways that we are in that sense, of tempted to sin, but he was tempted in other ways. But Jesus, of course, was sinless, but if we're going to be like him, we're going to have to reject sin and in every way, whether it's thoughts or speech or actions or desires, whatever it might be. We need to reject sin. We need to, to choose righteousness. That's doing the right thing. One thing to reject the wrong, but it's another thing to do the right. And so we need to do the right thing. We need, need to say yes to right attitudes and yes to right actions. We need to have a compassion for souls. The Bible says that Jesus uh, came to this earth to seek and to save that which was lost. So if we're like Jesus, then we need to be doing the same thing, desiring for people to be saved 
and desiring for God to use us. There's a lot of things involved in revival, and we pray that revival will come. But if revival doesn't come, and then we can ask the question, why? Why does revival tarry? Why is not revival being experienced by our church? I want to give you some reasons this morning why revival tarries. First of all, revival tarries because of a lack of humbleness. We must be humble. It's, it's, it's just a human thing for people to become proud. You know, we become proud of our accomplishments. We pr- become proud of our, our possessions or our influence or whatever it might be. And we can become, become proud. But God says that we are to be humble. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves. So God, in that, in that formula for revival, the first thing he says is that we humble ourselves. Psalm 9, verse 12, he says, he, he, the Lord, forgetteth not the cry of the humble. So the Lord listens to humble people. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves therefore in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. God wants us to be humble. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 says, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. And he says, humble yourselves therefore to the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care on him because he cares for you. And then in our bulletin this morning, uh, the, the text right at the top of the bulletin is Micah 6, 8. It had, he has showed the old man what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. So if revival tarries, it's going to be because of a lack of humbleness. We're too proud to admit that God needs to work in us. Sometimes, you know, we're too proud to to come forward in a church service and, and stand here or kneel here in prayer because it seems like if we do that, the other people are going to think something is wrong with us. Well, let's just get it straight. Something's wrong with every one of us. All of us need change. And so you should never be ashamed to come when God deals in your heart and uh, that God wants some, something changed in your life. You should never be ashamed to come and even admit that And uh, because we all have needs. We all are not all that we should be. Humbleness is not popular today. It's not, it's not popular to be humble. The world honors pride and self-sufficiency. Those who are great in the world's eyes are those who go for it with all gusto and attain success at all costs, regardless of who they hurt in the process. And lots of times, those people who've gotten, climbed that ladder of success and they've hurt people in the way, they're still looked up to, and uh, they become proud, and we really want to be like them. They become examples and models to those who are still trying to climb that ladder of success. And the Lord says, no, that's not the way it should be for a Christian. A Christian should be humble. God is not considered by those who become proud in that way. He's not considered. They think themselves as great, and we're not great. We're not big. Regardless of what we accomplish, we're not big. God is great, but they disregard that. They disregard what Isaiah chapter 40 says. In verse 6, the Lord gives several comparisons in that passage. And if you've been here long, you know that's one of my favorite passages, uh, Isaiah chapter 40. But in that passage, the Lord compares us to grass. 
Now, that's, you know, grass. You mow the grass. The Lord compares us to grass. He compares us to, in verse 15, to the, he says, all the nations, I mean, all the nations combined are as a drop of a bucket. Just a drop of a bucket. In, in God's mind, you combine all the nations of the world, and the Lord says, just a drop. So he is so great, and we are so small, that all the nations combined are nothing to him. And it says in that same verse that we're counted as a small dust of the balance. Now, the balance was a scale, you know, and there was dust on the balance if it hadn't been used for a while. And he says, not just dust, small dust. (laughs) Small dust on the balance. You know, small dust on the balance doesn't move the balance. And the Lord says, that's like we are. In his mind, as great as he is, compared to him, we're just like the small dust on the balance. In verse 22 of that passage, the Lord says, we're like grasshoppers. I was up at the church uh, property mowing, getting ready for today. And uh, we probably mowed, I guess I may mowed, uh, what would you say, Barney, close to five acres? Uh, four plus, anyway. And uh, there were grasshoppers all over the place. <laughs> I mean, there's grasshoppers jumping. And the Lord says, we, he compares us to grasshoppers. Now, if you're walking out in the field and you step on a grasshopper, you don't get all upset, do you? You don't say, oh, pastor, would you come? We've got to have a funeral for this grasshopper. You don't think anything about it. It's just a grasshopper. And the Lord compares us, he says, like grasshoppers. He is so great. He is so mighty. And we're so small. How dare we be proud? We must be humble. Also, the Lord says in verse 17, all the nations are to him as nothing. Now, nothing is zero. But in that same verse, he says, less than nothing. Now, I don't know how you get less than nothing, but God's just trying to paint the picture. God is painting the picture. God doesn't try to do anything. He does it. God is painting the picture. And that is, uh, we are small and he is great. But proud people of the world never consider God's greatness. They don't, they don't look up in the heavens and, and recognize God's glory. They don't look all around them and see the beauty of creation. Uh, they just are proud of themselves and their own accomplishments, and they don't consider the greatness of God. This same passage also not only tells us how small we are, but tells us how great he is. In chapter 40, verse 12, it says, He measured out the, wa- the waters in the hollow of his hand. I noticed this. Uh, I, was, I wrote it down, you know, on my notes. Measured out the model, the waters in the hollow of his hands. And I thought, it doesn't say that. So I took the S off <laughs> in the hollow of his hand. God is so great, he says, all the waters on the earth, when I created the he- heavens and the earth, I just measured it out in the hollow of my hand. Wow, that's a great God. Proud people don't realize God's greatness. Verse 22 says, he stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain. When you took a shower this morning or, or last night, you know, uh, you, you just uh, close the curtain. The Lord says, he stretched out the heavens like a curtain. It, it was just, it was no big deal to God. He could do it. It's not hard for him. It would, it, compared to us, it'd be like us just pulling the curtain shut. And then he says in that same verse, he spreadeth it out, the heavens, all the heavens, he spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. You know, you go camping, you set up your tent. 
And the Lord says, when I made the heavens and the earth and, I, and made all the heavens out there, I spread them out just like a tent to dwell in. It was not hard for the Lord. That's how great he is. And so if we're proud, we haven't considered his greatness. Psalm 8, verse 3 says, when I consider the work, the heavens, the works of thy fingers, all the heavens are finger play to God, the works of his fingers. The Bible says in, in the Isaiah 40, he calleth them all by names, talking about all the stars, all the heavens, billions and billions of them. He calls them all by name. I know there are people who set up this opportunity for you to name a planet or something <laughs> with your name or somebody, and all they're doing, they're just making money. Uh, they can't go up there and put a name on it. They're just making money is all. But the Lord says, I named them all. And God knows the name of every one of them. It's not hard for him because he is so great. He calls them all by names by the greatness of his might. You see, God is not impressed like we are with big names like sports names. You know, we spend hours watching a football game, and I can do that. I, could, I don't very often, but I, when I do, I can do it. I can enjoy it. The other night I'd watched a football game and stayed up a little bit later just to watch the, the, the um, commentary on it. And after a while I thought, this is ridiculous. <laughs> because really every game they're doing the same thing. And we get all excited about it, but really football, every game they're doing the same thing. All these guys are running after a ball. And when one gets it, they try to get it down the other end by throwing it, whatever. And that's all it is. They're just throwing a ball. And they're trying to get it to the other end. It's very simple, really, the whole thing. I know it's complex in the way they do it. No, I'm not belittling that. But really, it's in a sense, it's foolish. <laughs> and yet we idolize those people. We make them look like they're so great. God's not impressed with any of them. God's not impressed with any movie star. Have you noticed these movie stars do just exactly what you do? They get old. <laughs> and they get wrinkles. <laughs> And they lose their attractiveness. I saw that picture the other day of Tom Cruise, and he'd gotten fat. And uh, the ladies said, oh, my goodness. God's not impressed with any of those people, none of them. God's not impressed with company CEOs. I don't know how big, how big they are. God's not impressed with Bill Gates or any of his kind. God's not impressed with any world political leader, none of them. God's not impressed. You see, God is great, and those people need to be humble because God is great. But so we as Christians, we know God is great. So there is no room for pride in our life. We have to be humbled. God is pleased with humbleness, and when humbleness comes, then we are on the road to revival. We will not experience revival until we're humble. Walk humbly with our God means that we walk humbly with him and we recognize that we owe all the glory to God and we should thank him for everything, for our strength, for our talents, for our education, for our success, for our material wealth, all of it. We should, we should thank God for all of it because all of it comes from him. Only humble people are willing to listen to God as he speaks to them from the scripture and obey them and that is very necessary for revival. So if revival doesn't come, it might be because of a lack of humbleness. And then there's another thing. If revival doesn't come, if revival tarries, it'll be a lack, because of a lack of holiness. 
The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 20, 45, I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. He told the children of Israel when they went into the, the promised land, he, or he's going to bring them in the promised land. He said, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now I want you to be holy because I am holy. And God says the same thing to us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Your way of life. Be holy. Are we holy? Do we live holy lives? Do we live lives set apart unto the Lord and set apart away from sin? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We should perfect holiness in our life. We should be saying no to things we never said no to before. As we grow in the Lord, we should become more and more holy for the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7 says, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. God calls us to, to holiness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man can see the Lord. Follow peace with God and holiness, without which no man can see the Lord. Now, the Lord's not saying that you wait, the way you get to heaven is to be holy. But the Lord is saying, if you're, going to, if you're going to get to heaven, if you are going to heaven, there will be holiness. In other words, if you're really saved, there will be evidence I'm bothered by these people who claim that they're saved and they give you some experience and their life is just as contrary to that as anything. They don't act like Christians. They don't walk like Christians. They don't talk like Christians. They don't think like Christians. They are not holy at all. And God says, if you don't have holiness, you're not going to see the Lord. And so if you're truly a Christian, there is going to be some evidence there. That's why the Lord says, by their fruits you shall know them. And holiness is very necessary. Holiness in our thought life. Have you dealt with your thought life? You can't have revival in your mind unless you deal with your thought life. That means no, no I mean absolutely none whatsoever, no pornography at all. That means you don't think about wrong things. That means that you as a man need to control your eyes. And you, when you walk out in the public and there's a beautiful lady walks by, you have to tell your, your mind and your, yourself, you know, don't. Don't follow her. Don't look at her in a lustful way. Don't do that. Why? Because I want to be holy. I want to be like God wants me to be. And I reject that whole tendency to do that. And it is a tendency of, of the natural self to follow, follow sin. But God says we have to say no to it. And so there has to be holiness in our thought life. The Bible says in Philippians 4, 8, think on these things. He says, think on things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report and virtuous and praiseworthy. Think on those things. So we have to have holiness in our thought life. We have to have holiness in our speech. I think it's time for Christians to clean up their speech. You know, this world today, we have all kinds of things that are people saying that Christians didn't used to say. I mean, using words that, I mean, there's certain words that, that people use today. I will not use them, even though it's, it's a word that people use to, to uh, uh, illustrate frustration or, you know, I don't like this or something. I, I don't use that word because it just doesn't sound good for the Christian. I mean, I've eliminated a long time ago 
uh, things like uh, gosh and darn or darn. or I, I don't do that. Why? Because I just want to get away from that stuff. <laughs> because I want to, my speech to be right. And we've got to do that. We've got to, if we're going to have holiness, if we're going to have revival, we have to deal with ourselves and we have to start taking care of some things that we do just naturally, you know. But we understand that it's, it's really Christian cursing sometimes, <laughs> if there is such a thing. But we do that. And rather than say the real bad word, we'll say another word that's similar to it. You know, sounds a lot like it, but it's not exactly. And uh, we, I remember my dad had an expression. That's probably the closest I, I get to saying that, that wrong thing. And dad would say, shoot. <laughs> and I find this, I do the same thing. I get frustrated, I say, shoot. <laughs> now, I don't know what that means, really. <laughs> but uh, it's probably a word that you, that, Christians use instead of something else. <laughs> but I'm just saying, we just need to make sure that our speech is right. It's, it's, it's to be with grace, you know, seasoned with salt, and it's supposed to be honoring to the Lord. In other words, how would Jesus talk? Would Jesus take up the popular slang and just and use it without any, any, uh, underst- without any uh, thought about what it might mean? No, Jesus would just say, yay, yay, nay, nay. He would say what needs to be said, and, and he wouldn't use all those things. And so we have to be holiness in our speech and holiness in our walk, you know, choosing not to do things, not to do things. I was traveling just the other day out toward, toward, toward uh, Monroe, and I passed that, uh, that gambling place out there. I won't ask you to tell me the name because it might say you know it and I don't. I know it, I just can't think of it anyway. That, but that gambling place, I, I would not give that place one penny. If I was guaranteed, and I say this with all honesty, if I was guaranteed, Pastor, if you'll just go in there, I've talked to the owners and they're going to rig it up and, and nobody will know, but all you have to do is, is cast one bet or do a slot machine or whatever you call them, and, and, and I guarantee, they've guaranteed me, you'll win a million dollars. Just think you could build that church. All you have to do is just do it. It's, it's set up. You'll do it. I would say no. Why would I say no? My testimony is worth more than a million dollars. <laughs> I wouldn't do it. But this, all, all that is just things that people do, and sometimes Christians do. We shouldn't because we don't want to be holy in our walk. God wants us to be holy in our walk. Say no to all kinds of sin, holy in our walk. Well, I've got to hurry on. Another thing that will, that will cause revival to tarry is a lack of hardness. Now, I don't mean hard-heartedness. I mean hardness. You see, revival doesn't come cheap. Revival will cost you. It will cost us. And that is, we must be willing to experience some hardness for the Lord. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at a few verses in that, in that book. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. He says in verse 19, For this is thankworthy if, the man, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. 
For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. So you're suffering for, for Jesus. For even there too were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body in the tree, that we being dead to sin should live in the righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. The Lord is saying there that, that it, it's tough sometimes to live for Jesus, but you need to do it. You need to do it even if it calls suffering, if it makes hardness for you. Uh, you have to have, be willing to have that hardness in your life, experience some hardness for the Lord Jesus. We shrink away from hardness in the Christian life. Oh, yes, it's hard to say no to the world when the world is promising so much and when everybody else is doing it. It's hard to be humble when the world puts a, a, a premium on pride. It's hard to be humble. It's hard to say no to the flesh when sin offers and produces pleasure for a season. It's hard when your flesh says, I want to experience that. And God says no. It's hard to say no. It's hard to discipline yourself to read God's word when there are so many other things to do. I've made a practice in my life that I don't ever look at the news. I don't ever check the news on my phone. I don't turn the TV on. I, I, I never turn TV on in the morning. I, I, I do not like daytime TV at all. But anyway, that's another thing. But uh, I, I don't do any of that. I don't check the news. I don't check my text. I don't check anything until I read the Bible. And lately I've been using my app on my phone and I read it while listening to it. That's a blessing. But it'll help you if you get up in the morning and you start with God. Start with the Lord. But it's hard to discipline yourself to do that. It's hard to fast so you can draw nigh to God. It's really hard for us to do that. It's hard for me to do that. But that's something that's hardness that we need to endure if we're going to serve the Lord, if we're going to see revival in our lives. It's hard to spend time alone with God in prayer when the world rushes by a frantic pace. There's so much to do, and we're going to say we're going to spend time alone with the Lord. That's hard. It's hard to witness to lost when we think that they might reject what we have to say or make fun of it. It's hard to come to church when we don't feel like it. And I think it's a good rule, you know, if you say, I'm not going to go to church and don't feel well today, would you use the same thing, excuse tomorrow, Monday, when it comes time to go to work? Now, if you're sick, that's fine. I understand. But if you don't feel good, don't feel well, oh, I'm, I'm not, not feeling the greatest today. I think I'll just stay home. That's not right. You wouldn't do that for the, to the boss. It's hard when there's a good ball game on TV and it's time to go to church. When there's another important meeting, important meeting, like there's something more important than the Lord's house. It's hard when you are, lift, you are tired and you need some rest. It's hard when you... Your relatives come by, or mom says, uh, you know, be at my house by 12 o'clock today. I'm going to have lunch ready. You better be there. And you say, Mom, the preacher's long-winded. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but he won't have us out by 12. And uh, do you just say, well, forget church. I'll just, I'll just go to mom's. It's hard to take a stand against wrong at work when it might mean your job. 
It's hard to be ridiculed for being religious or old-fashioned or out of touch or a killjoy or to young ladies, misclean. It's hard to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, long-suffering and loving for someone who has hurt you. All those things are hard. Yes, it's tough. It's hard being a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ. But if we don't endure hardness, revival will never come. You must be willing to pay the price and do what God wants you to regardless of the, of the cost. Also, revival is tarries because of a lack of heavenly mindedness. Heavenly mindedness. In the book of Colossians chapter 3, Verses 1 and 2, it says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. If we're going to have revival, we must be heavenly minded. We must think about heaven. We must think about what's coming that's going to be forever and ever and ever, and not so much about what's here that's just going to be for a few years. God wants us to take care of our responsibilities here, that's true. But God wants us to think about eternity with him. Heavenly mindedness involves thinking about heavenly reunion. Remember 1 Thessalonians 4, I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. It goes on to say, the Lord is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. There's going to be a heavenly reunion. And that's talking about the rapture. It's not talking about your death. It's talking about the rapture. Of course, in, in your death, there's going to be a reunion too when you get to heaven and see those people who've gone on before you. But that passage is talking about the reunion. And are we thinking much about that these days? I was pleased this morning that Brother Barney talked about that, about the coming of the Lord and the rapture. And uh, that should be on our minds. And as the world changes and things get worse and worse and we see the stage set, we just need to be thinking more about the coming of the Lord. It could be today. And we need to be, have that on our mind, heavenly mindedness. We should be thinking about heavenly real estate. You see, the Bible says that everything that God owns is ours. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, the children of God, and he says we're children of God, and if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That means everything that God owns is mine. And the Lord says when he takes us to heaven, he's going to say, well, we don't have scripture to say that he's going to say these words, but we, we use these words, welcome home. And we talk about going home. And, you know, I've talked to Ed, who just went home last night, and he's talked about going home. On different occasions, we've talked about that. And this is the world, you know, and how it's getting. It'd be good to go home. And he meant heavenly home. We're going to be home someday. But we don't think about it enough. If we thought more about it, it would change our life. And so the Lord says we need to be thinking about heavenly real estate. You remember John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. That means that's my real estate. That's for me. That's for you who know Jesus as your Savior. He's going to prepare a place for you that where he is, there we may be also. And praise the Lord, we have that to look forward to. 
We should also be thinking of heavenly reckoning. This heavenly mindedness should cause us to think about heavenly reckoning. You see, there's coming a day of reckoning that's going to be in heaven for the Christian. It's called the, the, the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that uh, we're going to be examined, and the, and the fire of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, I think it is, is going to try us, and it will try our life to see what has, has been just frivolous things. He says there'll be gold, silver, and precious stone, but then there'll be those frivolous things of wood, hay, and stubble. Is, does our life consist of frivolous things? Or are there very important things? Gold, silver, and precious stones. Things that we do for eternity that's going to last. Things we do for Jesus. Those things that are going to last when we get to be with the Lord. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 14, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all stand. That we, that's us, we Christians, we must, that means we will, it means all, we're all going to stand there. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that every one of us shall receive, shall be, give account of himself to God. We will give account of ourself to God, every one of us. You individually is gonna, are going to stand before the Lord and give an account of your life. That is frightening. And I believe if we understood that more, we would be more prone to let the Lord do in our life what needs to be done so there would be revival in our life and also in our church because we are going to give an account. And the Lord says that we will. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every man may receive the things done in his body. That's now. All of you have a body. It's separate from anybody else's. It's your body. And the Lord says you're going to give an account of the things that you've done in your body for the Lord Jesus. What have you done in your body for the Lord Jesus? What have you done for the Lord by using your body to do that? What have you done for Jesus? The Lord says you're going to give an account of all things that you've done in your body uh, for the Lord. There will be reward and there will be loss. And I believe there will be reward for some of us and loss as well. There were things that we could have had, crowns we could have had that we don't have, and yet we will receive some crowns for the things we've done for the Lord, but the judgment seat is coming. And we must be heavenly minded thinking about that heavenly reunion we're going to have and that heavenly reckoning that we're going to have at the judgment seat of Christ. We should also be thinking about heavenly realization of our, of our greatest expectation, and that is we're going to see Jesus. The Bible says we're going to see him. You know, if you knew that next week on Thursday you're going to meet Jesus, would it change your life? Would it change your life? You know, it wasn't too long ago what was this, a couple of weeks, that Ed got sick. And uh, he came by the house. I gave him a, 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 a mower, a finished mower that goes on a tractor. I never use it, so I gave it to Ed. And he came by the house to get it, and he told me that he hadn't felt the greatest that day. And then he told me about a relative who had committed suicide. 
And that brought back some memories because his own granddaughter, you know, experienced that, and it's very heartbreaking to him. But he's with her right now. <laughs> but he told me that he struggled with that because it happened to this family member and it happened to Bethany and, and it happened to some others he knew, and, and it was just depressing to him. So he sat in his, he sat, he got in his truck after we loaded that mower, got in his truck, and I said, uh, Ed, let's pray. And so I prayed for Ed, and I think that's the last time I saw Ed. I never knew that. I never knew that. He didn't know it either. But uh, wasn't long after that that he got sick, you know, ended up in the hospital, and then last night he went home to be with the Lord. Our greatest expectation is that we're going to see Jesus, but some of us forget we might see him next week. And if you really think that, wouldn't it change the way we live? Wouldn't we start cleaning the house because we're going to see Jesus? It's going to take that kind of thinking if we're going to see revival. But also not only see him, we're going to be like him. Philippians chapter 3 says, Who shall change, that's talking of Jesus, who shall change our vile body that may be fashioned like unto his glorious body? And 1 John 3 tells us that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So all of a sudden, when you go to be with Jesus, you're going to see him and you're going to be like him. There won't be any more unholiness. There won't be any more impure thoughts. There won't be any more of that. You'll be exactly what you should be when you see Jesus. That day's coming. And don't you think, since we know that's true, that we should examine our lives and let the Lord work in us to make us more what he wants us to be. And then finally, I'd like to say, revival tarries because of a lack of happiness. A lack of happiness. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I was impressed last night in the midst of sorrow and losing her husband. Chessie had a peace and happiness that Ed was with Jesus. And that was, that's great, you know, that we can experience happiness all the time as a Christian. It doesn't mean we have to enjoy everything that's going on, but it doesn't say happiness in the circumstances. It says Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And till we as Christians begin to realize who we are and what we have and what we look, have to look forward to and be happy about it, we're not going to see revival. Many Christians go around, their faces so long, and we're so sad, and uh, you know people wouldn't know that we're Christians because of our demeanor and everything. We need to be rejoicing in the Lord. And I say that to me as well as you. All of us, we need to rejoice in the Lord more because we're going to see Jesus. And it might be tonight. It might be very soon. But revival won't come until we realize that these things are necessary. We need to have a humbled attitude. We need to have holiness in our life. We need to have a heavenly mindedness. We need to have a happiness that comes by thinking of all that we have in the Lord. As I say, last night we experienced the loss of our dear brother, Ed Blanton. He went home to be with Jesus. 
And for him, there's no more limitations. There's no more sickness. There's no more pain. There's no more sorrow. He's absent from the body and present with the Lord. We have experienced loss, but he has experienced great gain. And we're going to miss him. As some of you said today, some of the things you'll miss. We're going to miss his smile. I'm going to miss his laugh. If he was out in a crowd somewhere and I heard him laugh, I would know it was Ed Blanton. (laughs) I'm going to miss his laugh. I'm going to miss his encouragement to me and to you. I'm going to miss his love. And it was genuine love. I, I really felt that Ed loved me, and I know you felt the same way. I'm going to miss his faithfulness. I'm going to miss his testimony that people knew Ed was a Christian. I'm going to miss his example. I'm going to miss his giving. He was a giving man. And some of us really need to take up the slack because I don't know how much Ed gave, but I know he gave a lot to missions. And I'm sure he did. And uh, he gave in so many different ways. He was a giving man. And yes, I'm going to miss his jokes. <laughs> I'm going to miss his jokes. Sometimes I'd sit back here, you know, and he'd tell a joke, and I would just sort of uh, wonder, and I don't know if that was appropriate or not. <laughs> but everybody was laughing, so I said, that's all right. <laughs> I'm going to miss his jokes. He was a great man. But thank the Lord he's with, with Jesus right now. But let's be sure that we don't just sorrow over his loss. Let's make sure that we learn from his loss, that God teaches us. What would God teach us through that? Well, he, he would teach us this, that our time is short. You don't know if you're going to grow to be old. You don't know if you're going to grow to be older. Our opportunities are fleeting. The opportunities we have will be gone tomorrow. We will some, someday see Jesus, and it could be very soon. One time, soon it'll be our time to live by faith will be over. There'll be no opportunities to live by faith. Last night, when Ed went home to be with Jesus, he ended his opportunities to live by faith. Never can do it again. Because it's all sight. But to live by faith, trusting God when things don't go well, trusting God when it looks bad, Trusting God when you have to pay the price and you suffer, trusting him anyway. You won't, you won't get to do that in heaven. I mean, there'll be no need to faith. be faith. It's all sight. You, you know, it's, you're there and you see him. So opportunities to live by faith are on this earth right now. And we must make sure that we take those opportunities. The realization that we need revival should be to all of us. And we should understand that until there's humbleness, until there's holiness, until there's hardness, until there's heavenly mindedness, until there's true joy and happiness, we won't see revival. God, send us revival. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the fact that you are patient, you're kind, you're long-suffering. And Lord, you know, we know you've worked with us as a people and we know you've been faithful all the time. But sometimes, Lord, I'm sure that 
you just look at us and think, why don't they do more of what they're supposed to do? In other words, Lord, we need revival. And I pray that our church would be revived, that you would begin it in us, and we thank you that you're going to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.